Today, there's so many neat, innovative, simple ways you can send money to other people. But the story behind how your money gets from point A to point B safely, and how so many companies can build these new apps to help you do so, is anything but. Over the past several months, I've been interviewing experts to figure out all the various pieces that go into sending and receiving money. I learned about how your money moves, who keeps track of it and where it's going, who polices the companies that take your money and move it, and why the American system itself is uniquely designed to do all of these things better than a lot of other systems. And now, after talking to nearly half a dozen experts in the field, we're going to bring it all together to make the picture just a little clearer. In this week's episode of Simply Stated, we explore the story behind your money, how it moves, who protects it, and the very careful balancing act between keeping your money safe and allowing new ideas and apps to use this system. And we talk about a new federal government plan that could seriously harm this system. It's a really interesting story. Stay tuned. I'm Matt Longacre, and this is Simply Stated. Now, before I get ahead of myself and get too far into this discussion, the first thing that we need to make sure everybody understands is what a payment is. So when we talk about payments um, and when you hear policymakers right now talk about payments companies, what we're really talking about are non-bank companies that hold and move money for their customers. That's Margaret Liu. She's Deputy General Counsel at the Conference of State Bank Supervisors. That's an organization that brings together all the state regulators that cover banks and non-banks all over the country and helps them collaborate on a lot of modern day issues. She's going to help us a lot in this conversation to understand the legal aspect behind what a payment company is. Back to the explanation. Uh, they might be referred to as money transmitters. Um, it's part of a broader set known as money services businesses um, in the vocabulary of state regulation. And, you know, Matt, one of the things that I'd like to point out is I led with the term non-bank. Uh, you know, I said these are non-bank companies because these are entities that are not banks. They don't take deposits the way that uh, banks do. One of the fastest growing ways to interact with these money services businesses or payments companies nowadays is through mobile payments. And I talked to an expert, Rachel Siegel from Pew Charitable Trusts, a little earlier this year to figure out exactly what a mobile payment is. Anytime you're making a transaction from your cell phone, that would be a mobile payment. So think about anytime you have a mobile wallet on there or even an app where you're buying a salad or a coffee, you're doing any kind of transaction, maybe you're calling a car and the payment is seamlessly integrated into that process, that would all be a mobile payment. And it's easy for some consumers to forget they've even made that payment because their credit or debit card is connected, they do their transaction and it's just uh, integrated into the process. But payments themselves don't just operate through apps. There are also lots of other ways that you can move money from point A to point B without using your phone. Payments companies um, can and are still oftentimes in person. Uh, they can be really large. They can be really small. They can be operating in one state, all 50 states. Um, and they can be facilitating payments between folks across town or, you know, across the country around the globe. And when you really start thinking about 
payments companies as existing outside of just tech itself, you begin to realize that payments has been around for a really long time. Uh, yeah, states have licensed money transmitters since the uh, very early 1900s. This is Matt Lambert. He also works with Margaret at CSBS, and he's here to help us better understand a bit of the history behind how states have protected consumers over time with these payments companies. But first, he's going to share a bit about how money transmission looked 100 years ago. As it relates to taking money on steamships and traveling across oceans with that money, you can imagine how easy it would be to make off with the funds that an immigrant is sending back to their home country, and nobody would ever find out. So there was a legal system in place back then for this. Yeah, New Jersey had a law put into place, I think it was 1907, don't quote me on that, it's a year or two around there, requiring transmitters of money in the most literal sense, people that are holding money and bringing it across oceans, to register with the commissioner of banks and get a bond so that there would be a recourse mechanism if money disappears uh, somewhere in that process. So as money moved, there was a fear for consumers about it going missing, and states were taking steps to make sure that that money was safe. So how did payments change over the next 40 or 50 years? As it turns out, the way money moved didn't really change a lot until the advent of the internet. Here's Joey Samowitz, an expert on real-time payments who can help us understand what things were like just before the internet really took storm. Essentially, banks are were trucking around paper checks, so they would have staff that would get them organized. Those checks would go to a central processing center, uh, be sorted again, hustled onto airplanes and flown across the country, Um, in which case they would end up in a central clearing unit, such as a Federal Reserve Bank, and that would then debit your bank's account and credit the payees. Uh, So when you think of sort of how antiquated this process was, you had staff taking time, to, to manually sort these checks, which I think today sort of seems so unfathomable um, from you know an operations standpoint for an institution. But even as the physical movement of payment instruments remained the same, the instrument itself changed. Instead of cash or physical value items, we had checks. And so you begin to see over time these rails, so to speak, underlying the payment system that made things a little safer. And even as technology continues to change at a rapid pace, that underlying system is still in use today. If you have a PayPal wallet or a Google Payments wallet or some other digital platform wallet, that money does go through a payment system, but it's not necessarily PayPal's. They have an ACH account with a large bank or two Uh, that ends up sending those funds through the ACH network to get where it ultimately needs to go. That is the payments system. That is the plumbing, and it is a function of our banking system, uh, whereas the licensed money transmitters sit on top of it. So to tie up the first chapter of our journey today, here's what we've got. We have a payment system that has evolved over 100 years that started with money moving across the ocean and being controlled and protected by states with new laws. Over time, that movement of money moved towards checks. 
And as that happened, some rails were developed that helped banks and regulators keep track of where money was going and better protect consumers and make sure money got to where it needed to go. And today, that system built within banks is supervised either by states or by federal regulators. And we have these new companies that are coming about that use those rails to bring new ideas and new innovative tools to consumers on top of it. In chapter two, we explore why does this system work so well? Why are so many new companies appearing, growing, and providing all of these new and innovative tools to consumers day in and day out? And we talk about a new proposal that threatens to upend this entire system, favoring the largest and most established companies in a way that could harm new companies and consumers, and could even put you, the taxpayer, on the hook for big tech bankruptcies. Stay tuned for chapter two. So to quickly recap what we just said, these new companies are not creating a new payment system themselves. Here's how Rachel explains it. Money moves on the same rails or infrastructure as your credit card or your debit card. So this begs the question, who exactly is supervising these companies? Because banks can be supervised by the state system or by the federal system and have multiple regulators. But a lot of people don't know who exactly is supervising payments companies themselves. So for these non-bank payments companies, uh, the states are the ones who are overseeing them. Uh, The CFPB has a a small and limited role, um, but the states, from a consumer protection standpoint, uh, from a standpoint of financial safety and soundness, um, as well as from the uh, perspective of compliance with um, anti-money laundering requirements. Now, state oversight is a, uh, there's a term kind of cradle to grave. Well, that sounds a little dark. It's actually a lot more important than you think. What I mean is that this oversight and supervision covers the entire time span from when they entered the marketplace to, in some instances, when they exit the marketplace. So entering the marketplace, licensing, um, operating responsibly, supervision, you know, ongoing oversight, dealing with complaints, and then when necessary, dealing with the unwinding of a company. And this is something that a lot of different people impressed upon me when I spoke to them, that the state system is designed to allow companies to appear in the payments world, try something new, use a reliable underlying system, and then if it doesn't work, close quickly without really harming consumers. Margaret explains it really well. The state system's really set up to bring new companies in, um, and like I said, for companies to exit the market. Just in this one category, you know, payments, money, money transmission. In 2019, based on our NMLS data, 92 companies acquired their first money transmission license through NMLS, our state non-bank licensing platform. Uh, so it's almost 100 companies. So today, 67 of these entities are licensed in one state. Uh, 10 of them are licensed in uh, two to nine states. 15 of them are licensed in 10 or more. Um, and this includes seven that are licensed in 25 or more states and three that are licensed in 30 or more states. So what we have is a licensing system where any company of any size can enter and begin operating immediately in the spaces that they want to be operating in in a safe and sound manner. According to Matt Lambert, that's pretty unique compared to the rest of the world. We are the envy of the world when it comes to these kinds of consumer interfaces. Anybody can try and fail. And that is the most important part of innovation as far as building new systems goes. 
But innovation aside, there has to be some concern that when a company fails, a consumer still has their money protected. But the key part of that from a regulatory standpoint is that if uh, something fails, consumers can't be caught up in the middle of it. And that's why the states for, well, historically for 100 years have had uh, uh, consumer protections in place to make sure that money transmitters don't fail and take consumer funds with them. So the deal is pretty sweet for everybody involved. For a business, they have a pre-built infrastructure where they can try something new. And they get to go into the market and see where things work and where things don't. And if they fail, they take the responsibility with them. For the consumer, they can try out new products and services and know that if that business does fail, their money doesn't go away with the business itself. And these business failures happen a lot more than we think. Hundreds of money transmitters have stopped being money transmitters in the eight years that NMLS has been the licensing system for money transmitters. That that kind of gets lost in the, the narrative because, because nothing dramatic happens. You don't hear these stories uh, like you're hearing now out of Germany with Wirecard. Wirecard is a fintech company in Germany that's supervised largely at the federal level. At one point worth more than $20 billion, this company is currently undergoing a major fraud scandal. And the only reason customers are going to get their money back is because Wirecard just so happened to be part of an investor group that promised to insure each other's money if anything went wrong. If other companies in Germany had this similar problem, we're not quite as sure what might happen. And as for the U.S. state system? We have companies disappearing all the time, but they don't do it with consumer funds, and that is a unique and important feature of the state system. It has proved to be very workable uh, and one where a company in a garage somewhere can get a license in a state and build and gain scale uh, where that might not be possible in other systems. Uh, It's especially not possible in our federal system. And this final point about whether or not the federal system can effectively supervise payments, and fintech companies is something that is being argued right now between states and the federal government. Back in 2017, the OCC proposed an idea to create a federal fintech charter, effectively allowing many of these companies to operate as a non-bank bank on the federal level, effectively exempting them from a lot of the protections that we've been talking about today. Now, the OCC says that this is necessary because fintech and payment companies now operate more nationally, and local rules and guidelines just shouldn't apply to them anymore. I wanted to ask Margaret about this position, because CSBS and the New York State Department of Financial Services sued the OCC for this, arguing that it was both unconstitutional and would radically reshape how supervision happened in the states. So we've all heard the talking points about borders, you know, losing their meaning or meaning something different in a tech or if you want to say fintech world. You know, this is a simplistic view that ignores fundamentals of our system of government. You know, at the end of the day, consumers and customers, they still live somewhere. Uh, And someone needs to be sure that these services are delivered responsibly, that, that companies and businesses are locally accountable you know, that they're serving their communities, but also that they're held accountable when something goes wrong, um, and that these state and local financial markets operate effectively and competitively. You know, these are core state responsibilities. And, and that is why, you know, from my standpoint, it is so important that supervision of payments 
remains uh, with the states the way that it is you know, currently set up. And the consequences of a system that's more centralized and less democratized may not be so obvious unless you take a look at other systems that are currently that way. The open banking initiative in the UK is not with the uh, it's not with the financial services regulator. It's with the antitrust regulator. And that's because there's not uh, good competition for payments uh, and related services in the UK. There's a handful of banks and they dominate the financial services to the point where it's uh, really hindered innovation. And we don't have that problem. There's a very specific reason why we don't. It's the democratization of uh, financial services. But courts really don't care about whether or not something is good or bad. They care about whether or not it's legal. So what's the legal argument against the OCC's decision to make a fintech charter? So, you know, at the crux of it, our view is that the OCC can't issue a bank charter to a company that does not take deposits. The OCC does not get to decide what type of company gets to be a bank. Uh, that's, a con- that's a decision that Congress gets to make. So from our standpoint, the law does not authorize the OCC to do what it purports to do. And so far, the courts agree, saying that the OCC cannot create a charter for a non-bank because institutions they supervise must engage in the business of banking, which requires them to take deposits. Now, the OCC is appealing this decision, but at the same time, they're creating yet another charter on top of the fintech charter. This time, they're calling it a payments charter, and it seems remarkably similar to the fintech charter. Margaret explains. What the OCC seems to be talking about as far as a payments fintech charter is not just remarkably similar to the fintech charter that a court has already ruled is invalid. Actually, what the OCC has been recently talking about is the same thing. Um, And so from our standpoint, the decision uh, that the New York court made, uh, a decision that has nationwide applicability, uh, says the same thing about the proposed fintech charter as it does about the proposed payments fintech charter. And so if the courts have already said no to the OCC and they're appealing through the courts, what exactly is legal or okay about this payments charter at the same time? I have to confess what I don't fully understand in terms of the, the legal uh, grounding um, is the fact that we what we have right now most recently is that the OCC is trying to create some sort of artificial distance uh, between what the court in New York very clearly said um, and their you know, aspirations and ambitions to be chartering non-bank payments companies. So here's what we've got. We've got a history that says this system works. We have examples from other countries saying a federalized payment system just doesn't work. We have courts saying this is the purview of the states and only Congress can change that. And we have a federal agency essentially ignoring all of that. So what are the states to do? In this moment, the only thing more they can do is continue to innovate, make their system even more valuable and effective for fintech and payment companies. So that the OCC not only has no legal basis to stand on, but no rational basis either. The states are looking to technology and data to streamline exams and to get a better real-time picture of their regulated entities. 
And, um, you know, really importantly, the states are collaborating to drive toward more common approaches and interpretations. You know, sometimes data and technology help us do this, um, but this is also about day-to-day uh, -day, uh, collaboration. And there is a tremendous amount of work going on in the payment space um, when, when it comes to that area. You know, we've got work um, on, uh, on model laws and model approaches to MSB oversight. Uh, where we're looking at um, technology platforms that also facilitate that, that collaboration and that consistent approach. Um, and so, you know, the states are looking at these responsibilities and staying true to the core of them, but they're really trying to, um, and, and we've done a lot of work um, to, uh, to, to, to streamline, um, to, to modernize, um, and, and to really be 21st century in our approach. That's all for today. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe in your favorite podcasting app. If you'd like it in your inbox, head on over to csps.org, go to the newsroom, and subscribe in the sidebar. Thanks for listening. I'm Matt Longacre, and this was Simply Stated.